Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 101 of the Mandolins and Beer podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. This is part two with the master Sam Bush. We talk about all sorts of cool stuff, some of his favorite players. Um, thank you guys so much for uh, listening to part one and giving me such great feedback. A reminder, if you go to mandolinsandbeer.com right now, a pop-up comes up. Just enter your first name, last name, and email, and it registers you to win one year, a one-course, one-year subscription at Peghead Nation. That's right. Any course you want, you'll get it free for a year if you're selected as the winner. There'll be one winner, and I'll be picking it and announcing it on next week's episode. So be sure to hang around for that. Um, also, I forgot last week, Adrian Gross was kind enough to send me a copy of the Adeline project that he did. Um, Adrian plays with the Slow Can Ramblers, and we are going to do an interview. But we're going to wait because the uh, the Ramblers have an album coming out, too. So we're going to make that happen. But I wanted everybody to hear this. So at the very end of this podcast, I'll be playing um, a cut evening prayer blues uh, at the very end. So be sure to hang out to the very end and listen to that project and you can get it. Um, and another reminder for all you people who love to buy music, Bandcamp is waiving their fees this week. They're back to the first Fridays. If you go to mandolinsandbeer.com as well, I've got a Bandcamp list of all the guests who have been on the show where you can go and click that and buy their music. Again, um, they waive the fees so the artist gets all the money and that's a big deal. So there you go. All right. Speaking of Peghead Nation, Peghead Nation streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass. You'll learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in roots music. Peghead Nation's got the greatest lineup of mandolin instructors around. Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Fibish, and Chad Manning. Everything from beginner courses all the way to that complex magic stuff that uh, Aaron Weinstein does. Actually, it's not magic. He shows you how to do it. It's just a lot of hard work. Maybe, maybe a little magic. The guy's incredible. So anyway, uh, and again, one free year. All you got to do is send in an email. The courses include high-quality video, downloadable notation and tab, and play-along tracks and plenty of tunes and songs to play. Just go to Peghead Nation's video courses now, and you'll get your first month for free. Just go to PegheadNation.com and use the promo code MANDOLINBEER, all one word, at checkout. Northfield Mandolins, I'm heading there, heading to the airport right after uh, right after I record this. Uh, let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com. Download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. And go to their Instagram as well. Uh, and again, if you're in Michigan, if you're in Marshall, Michigan, head on over to the, uh, to the Mando Extravaganza that Northfield is putting on. I'll be playing there with... Keith Billick from the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast, which you should definitely subscribe to. And our buddy Aaron as well will be playing guitar and singing. So we got a couple cool tunes we're going to be playing for there. I'm also going to try to video that. Picked up a GoPro just for that purpose. We'll see if I can't figure that out. Um, and then also, Pava Mandolins, dedicated to building for the impassioned player in Austin, Texas. Thank you so much to my sponsors. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you to everybody who listened. Again, please head over to the uh, website, mandolinsabeer.com. It's been revamped, and there's a pop-up that comes up. And if you put your information in there, you can register to win one course for a year from Peghead Nation. Okay, we're going to take it back where we were with Sam. We left off, and we were talking about the Sam and Dave album, Hold On, We're Strumming. And uh, he talks about his love for Dave and uh, all things mandolin. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in. Cheers.
that was such a, a, a love fest uh, between the two of us and our manlins. And, uh, uh, you know, some some of those we'd, we'd just make up a little tune and record it that day. And uh, but we realized, uh, you know, we, we didn't just want we didn't just want to just hear the two mandolins on the whole record. So, you know, that's when we had di- di- different folks play some stuff on it. I think that might have been Sam Grisman's first recording was playing with us. Oh, no kidding. On that. I, that I, I can't swear to that. But uh, I, but I know that was awful early. And he was he was still, young, still uh, you know, I guess still in high school. Wow. Well, he was. <laughs> That's a great. You two, um, I've interviewed. Um, I guess I've interviewed. Uh, Eighty episode eighty three was was yesterday came out, and I do it one a week. And um, you and David, I would say, I would probably be a hundred percent of the time when people talk about their influences. You guys are always the the names that come up. It's and it's just it's so cool, man. Again, to to be having this conversation with you as well because it's just. It, the, the amount of people that you've influenced and David have influenced that have influenced so many people on top of yourself. It's, it's just mind boggling again, for me to think of the fact, like if you just stuck with guitar and that bluegrass Alliance and like how many of these people wouldn't even be playing mandolin now? Well, it's, you know, it's just all part of it. I mean, and you know, I was just thinking about yesterday, all, you know, just all the great and I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I'm, I'm now actually at the age that Jethro was when he passed away, right? So that's kind of crazy to think about. But, you know, to say how many young mandolin players I love and how many great players there are. And and uh, I've always been of the mind. Some, uh, somebody said to me early on when I was a kid, he goes, hey, man, if you keep, if, you know, well, I'll say this: It's a podcast. If you keep your head out of your ass, you will, you will, you will find that there is something you can learn from every musician you ever see. And maybe they only know three chords and three licks, but you can learn those. And there's just something to be learned in every situation. And so, I, uh, you know, it inspires me to to be around, you know, players that. Yeah, they might have been influenced by David or me or indirectly, you know, influenced by other people that were influenced by David and me or, or you know, we're, or it, it blows my mind to think that there's a whole generation of people that now would have never seen Bill Monroe and didn't get to see him and uh, or, you know, hadn't seen Frank Wakefield or, or, or Bill or John Duffy, uh, Joe Val uh, and uh, people, you know, that were just you know, kind to me that, that I could look up to. And, and, uh, but there's, but I am, I get inspired from playing, you know, uh, we have, we have a, a thing uh, on, uh, we put out, started during the pandemic every Friday on, it's like on Facebook, jamming with Sam. And I just, cause I got so sick of playing by myself early. I, <laughs> I did things by, you know, well, first I started out doing Homer Jethro songs. Did twelve episodes of uh, what I call Homer Jethro's Corner, and and I found out that uh, you know a young generation might not relate to the subject matter of Homer Jethro songs, which usually revolves around you know uh, how ugly your wife is or uh, or, uh, or barnyard animals or. You know. <laughs> and uh, so after twelve of those, then uh, Lynn, my wife, suggested I just do I do some. 
some of the songs that I wrote in early Newgrass Revival with my friend Steve Brines. So I did about 12 of those, singer-songwriter kind of things. And then after that, I just, just oh, I want to play with somebody. So, you know, then we got where, okay, we get two people. And, and just some of the, the greatest things I just, you know, loved. I was recently, you know, Ronnie McCurry came over and we played some mandolin duets. And Ronnie's just one of the greatest mandolin players I've ever heard in my life. And, and uh, he, I just love playing with other people and getting, you know, getting to bounce off of them and, and learning, you know, I learned, I'm, I can't play like Ronnie, but I sure love, you know, playing with him and, and, and yeah, I bet I pick up a lick or two from him. And, um, Sierra Hall, we, we had, you know, occasion to do something earlier in the summer last year, just, and the Lord knows, you know, Sierra is just inspirational to sit with and, and listen to. And, um, uh, and and also at one point uh, Tim O'Brien came over. Yeah. Now there's one of the great uh, great mandolin players that might not get a lot of as much notice as maybe should. Uh, I agree. Tim O'Brien is one of, you know, and Tim's rhythmic sense is just wonderful. And, uh, God, just, you know, he's so unique and, um, it kind of transfers into his guitar playing too. He's just he's a wonderful guitarist and, um, and vocalist. But, oh, I, I love well, his voice. His, it's so oh, conversational, man, man. He's saying, he's saying, uh, on, for one of, for one of our jamming with Sam's, he did senior, the Bob Dylan song. And it, that, that song, uh, his voice gives me chills and, uh, he's just, so I said, "Why don't you and Tim record this? Set to record together." I said, "Because we play the same instruments. <laughs> <laughs> same reason we we we've played in a few uh, just one ensemble together because we all we both do the same thing. And I, and I think it's always a fight to who gets the mandolin <laughs> <laughs> because I think Tim and I are, are similar. That what well, similarity for us is that I, I think of us this way, and I wonder if he does. Uh, that we're both mandolin players that also play the fiddle. Mm. But when I first met Tim, he was the fiddle player in a swing band called the Ophelia Swing Band from Colorado. He's living out there. So it was that was pre-Hot Rise. So I, I actually knew Tim first as a fiddler. Wow, no uh, kidding. Yeah. So that was in 1975 we met out in Telluride. Wow. The thing is with these young players, and again, I've interviewed so many of them. The one thing, too, that really comes out of not the fact that you're just a huge influence, but just how gracious you are with your time with these players. I can't tell you how many people have talked about like how much of a help you have been with them. And like Sierra said, yeah, I interviewed her and, you know, talking about she's like a little kid and you you jammed with her for an hour. I think, that, well, that just fell, that just fell in my lap. I was, uh, we were at just, I think that was, I guess it was at an IBMA and the, the Gibson booth. And, uh, I think she was 10 and, uh, 10 or 11 maybe. And, and I just, I mean, you know, no, I was just sitting there. She asked, can we play some tunes? Yeah. <laughs> and there's, uh, you know, some there's some people you you meet where you you know they're unique, 
and uh, Sierra very much falls into that. You know, it's not that it wasn't that unlike of the first time I ever heard Chris Thiele. Um you know, or the first time I ever you know heard Mark O'Connor. Um, I guess Mark was. I guess the first time I ever heard Mark, he was probably playing guitar. But uh, I'd already heard of him as a fiddler, and so when I heard him as a fiddle player, it's just like, holy mackerel, this guy is, you know, just, uh, uh, it's, it, by the time he's, by the time he was 15, I think, or, you know, uh, he, nobody could beat him in a fiddle contest. Wow. And um, <laughs> he, it was like a fully realized style all of a sudden. And I just, I, I so, but like when I met Chris Thiele, I, uh, I can't remember what what buddy of mine said. If you can't beat them, join them. And uh, so I I knew I wanted to be in on Chris's music. And uh, so uh, Peter Wernick produced Chris's first album, and then Sugar Hill actually asked me about producing Chris's second one. And uh, so that's how I you know I got to. Uh, entertain that thought of producing Chris's second album, Stealing Second. People, uh, you know, had said, oh, I see where you, you made Chris more of a, a new grass player. I did not. All I did, I mean, Chris, when we started getting together and even playing these tunes for me that he wanted to record, uh, really, Daniel, all I, all, my main, con- <laughs> I swear, my main contribution to re- producing Chris was that uh, he'd have tunes with seven parts. You know, six or six. And I go, you know, Chris, you just don't, can you take, if you take those parts, take a few of those parts out of these tunes, you can make a whole other tunes out of those. And, uh, Did you have three albums? And, and, and I, and I had friends that I could call and say, I'm producing, I'm working with this young Malin player that you, you want to, you want to be in on this. You know, you got to come, you, you need to come play on this and hear him. And so that that was my contribution, and um, and so I, it, it, uh, last summer in the summer of 2020, and somewhere along the, the lines of the pandemic, I, I thought, huh, wow, I haven't heard Stealing Second in so long, and I listened to that album, and it blew my mind how good Chris was. I, I maybe was 16, somewhere in there. When we made that record, and we both loved, and we loved, and we loved baseball. He's a Cubs fan. I'm a Cardinal fan, and we, you know, we'd pitch baseball together and uh, oh, cool, play together. And uh, he could throw a curveball already. Could and, he really? Uh, oh yeah. And uh, <laughs> Chris, man, he, you know, he's talent. He's just talented. He's just, he's just talented. And uh, but I, I knew when I was sitting there. Because, you know, sit, getting to sit in the control room, again, I'm, yeah, yes, I had direction of, okay, let's try this, blah, blah, try that. And, um, maybe one tune, I, 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 I 
he did a beautiful tune he wrote. Well, he wrote them all, but he wrote the tune called Kneel Before Him. And it's so pretty. And he had played a solo on it that was really fancy. And it's a slow, beautiful melody. And uh, my only, I think one of the few inputs I had, I certainly didn't direct him in any way of the way he played the mandolin. That's all Chris Dooley. He had a fully realized, beautiful style going. And uh, the best thing I could do was just, again, I think Chet Atkins might have said, if you want to produce, hire people you trust and stay out of the way. <laughs> and uh, and I, um, I think I just, the one thing I said was, Chris, you've got this whole album, the solo on, all these tunes you wrote, and all these notes that you are capable of doing. Why don't you make this one slower and prettier? Try to see how pretty and... And uh, and long you can make your notes last because Chris does pull a beautiful sustain out of an instrument out of the instrument that has no sustain. <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, any rate, that's one of the few few things I said. Uh, you know, edit some of these tunes down and maybe play slower on you before him. recently and his playing on um, on the tune stealing second is just that is phenomenal it is so phenomenal and clean those so, slides and, and the, you, oh <laughs> yeah and you'd be amazed how many of those things he did on that record were first take oh that's yeah, that's depressing <laughs> as, he cut, as we cut the songs it was just he is so i as you can tell i'm a big fan of Manlin players and listen to them and it's just great to be influenced by all these guys but uh, I, I think I, I was just thinking about this the other day don't, as Manlin playing goes don't forget about good old Jimmy Goodrow along the way <laughs> And I sailed from old Ireland and home. Oh, those hills. Uh, and and I'll tell you another great unsung hero that uh, everyone knows and loves his brother, but Larry Rice. one of the most unique and best male players I ever heard. If you can stand up there and swap with J.D. Crow, buddy, you can do it. Yeah, Larry, Larry was a friend of mine, and, and uh, I really loved him. And Larry, Larry had a great sense of humor, and, and uh, one day he just looked at me. He had a dry sense of humor. He just looked at me and goes, you know, the other day I was fishing, and I looked over on the fish, over on the creek bank, and there it was, an original Lloyd Lure. <laughs> 
<laughs> Lloyd Lure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a great joke. <laughs> I know. I thought so. <laughs> yeah, man. Oh, wow. I have to, I got to ask you about your solo albums. What was it like to, to eventually be like, all right, I'm just, I'm going to do Sam Bush, you know, because you had Newgrass Revival and then the Nash Ramblers. And what was it like to eventually just strike it out on your own? Well, it was uh, the great humbler because, you know, just because you were in a band that people like doesn't mean they want to hear what you do. They they enjoyed the combination of those people before. So, uh, but uh, it, again, it's just always, it's just a, a labor of love and an adventure in music. And so, uh, and uh love the love the the, the collaboration and the, within those solo records you'll find that uh you know could play a certain way with this group of musicians and, and this this guitar player and different ones and so it's really been when we you know it's so nice that the, for the past so many years uh having the collaboration of you know Stephen Mojan on guitar and Stephen is the great vocal coach for me and uh, for now for many years you know 15 years scott vestal on banjo he's one of the greatest banjo players that'll ever touch it and um and 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 um you know i don't just love playing with any drummer i love playing with larry atamaniuk and chris brown and uh and then byron house on the bass for so many years now todd parks and so it's getting to collaborate with those musicians and they're willing to go along with the musical trips that I have in mind. And, um, and of course I, you know, aspire to have, to have the mandolin play and be part of that and fiddling. Um, but really they're, I guess they're vocal albums more than anything. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. So that's been part of a, a musical growth that, uh, especially in the pandemic, I've, you know, I've never thought that much about it other than, wow, you know, I've, I've always sung in every band. And I hadn't thought much about it. By the way, they're in coming out this year in 2021. There's going to be a live Nash Rambler album that was from the first year we were together. Oh wow! That I must say is so good. I'm pr- really proud of it. Oh wow! Really proud of it. But, oh, I can't um, wait. Yeah, it's Emmy Lou is it totally at the top of her game, and it's one of the greatest vocal records by her I've ever heard. One of the things you've really had in your in your lifetime is some pretty incredible collaborations with all sorts of artists. And I wonder if there were any collaborations that you've had that really kind of starstruck you or, you know, were like, wow, this, I can't believe I'm playing with so-and-so today. Well, I mean, early, you know, back, I mean, well, Leon Russell was the first one that would have ever really, uh, at first, been a starstruck one, and because uh, we, the Newgrass Revival, we 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 found ourselves opening for the, the biggest rock tour in America in, in 1973, and so we didn't really get to know him that well during that space. That was for like a I don't know three months period, two and a half months, and then uh, but later in 1979. Uh, we were opening for uh, John Hartford in Tulsa, and Leon drove by and saw us and saw our name and just stopped because he hadn't thought about us or seen us in years. And um, and he came in, and there we were doing the sound check, and he ended up sitting in with us that night. And later after the, the uh, show, we ended up jamming all night and uh, literally till like 4 a.m., 
And uh, it wasn't long till we were recording with him. But I mean, so the starstruck, it, it kind of went out the window pretty quickly. Uh, but I mean, it was, um, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's wild when, cause I mean, Hartford was that way too. Uh, when we first got to know him a little bit, I'd been a longtime fan of John's and, uh, I remember going to see John, uh, I guess I was a senior in high school and John was doing really well. I mean, he he was playing at the basketball arena in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Oh wow! And I, and I, I was dying to get over to the show but i had to march in the marching band at halftime football game before that and i remember falling down in the mud <laughs> <laughs> and, and going in my uh yeah you took off the outside overlay but i still had on the coat and pants from my uh, marching band uniform when i was you know got to go see john hartford play <laughs> and um and then we met him up at bean blossom uh, in 1971, when I was in Bluegrass Alliance, and that was the Aerial Plane Band. I think I touched on that. Yeah. And uh, so that, but you know, John, I was kind of starstruck around John. Doc Watson, the same way. I mean, getting to meet Doc, and and uh, that was, and it was always something with with great respect. I when I was around Doc, uh, but I definitely had to get over a slight bit of starstruck uh, to 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 be able to settle down and play with Doc. Um, but you know, as far as collaborations, uh, one of my favorites is, um, uh, Sam and David with Grisman. You do, you've done tons of session work and obviously tons of live shows, um, for mandolin players out there who maybe aren't familiar with the studio, who might be looking at recording or doing things like that. What are some of the big differences that you find when you're playing in the studio, um, as opposed to when you're playing live as far as like your technique goes or your mindset well i think uh you know you 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 try not to tense up when the red light goes on but i think it just kind of happens a lot so you know one thing you got to remember is to breathe you gotta <laughs> just breathe keep your breathing seriously and uh i mean you might find you i found myself holding my breath sometimes for particularly hard passage and that doesn't help at all and um but um you know, it was interesting, and I'll think of Grisman in this way, too. Um, early on, like, you know, I was a huge fan uh, of my friends that had made this great record, the David Grisman Quintet first album. And uh, I was just, you know, thrilled. You know, Tony and I were longtime pals already. Um, but then when he, you know, got with David, then they made this new music. And, um, um, how great that first record sounded. And I remember talking to David about what, you know, the man, how great the mandolin sounds and what, you know, what can I do to, you know, up my sound. And, uh, he was telling me, you know, that, well, first thing he said, it, 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 this, it was such an elementary thought, but I hadn't thought of this before when he said, um, the first thing you got to do is start with good strings. If you don't, if you don't have good strings on your mandolin when you start recording, then the engineer doesn't have a chance to you know, portray your sound. And um, so that and uh, and and through going out and, and recording with Tony at the same studio uh, as they had done the had done the Grisman records and uh, and with the same engineer, the, the great Bill Wolf, uh, uh, using a Neumann KM84. And I found that the KM84 just captured uh, the, the, especially my mandolin, the, the mandolin range. It seemed to capture 
um, and with the, with the the great high end brilliance as well as a, a nice a, a good you know lower sound as well. So basically, starting with good strings, yeah, you got. So I basically uh, when I record, I always start with new strings. And it's interesting because, you know, sometimes uh, the rhythm chop sounds better when maybe when they're not quite new, but the, but I find the lead the lead sounds for what all, for an overall sound is that you want your uh, your your notes to pop through when you play a solo. Then I I have to start with new strings, and uh, I unfortunately make strings a lot deader than some people do. <laughs> And uh, I have that gift <laughs> of killer of killer sweat, and um, and a lot of times, uh, you know, if we've played a number of hours in a studio, I will find myself uh, changing the, the third and fourth string, the wrapped strings. Uh, I guess you can hear that other line. Oh, that's all right, man. But uh, I'll find myself uh, changing my wound strings, you know, for later in the day because they they have dulled and and. Uh, you know, you before you know it, they uh, they've gotten they've gotten dead on me, and that you know, and I and I love the Dario strings, and uh, so I hope that's not a reflection on them because I've proven that I can make any strings dead. <laughs> and uh, oh man, and the Dario makes the Mona Steel strings, uh, or I call them Mona Steel Monel, uh, and uh, which all started when I grew up playing Gibson. Strings and uh, when I was a kid, there there weren't any bronze mandolin strings yet, and uh, so the Gibson set number one sixty one was what I grew up with. They in fact were uh, you know Monel they were called Mona Steel on the package, and um, so and Gibson years later asked me if I would like to uh, uh, you know have a, a, a signature set. I just went. You know, make the 161s my set. So that's what they did, and so and that's why I still pretty much use that gauge, uh, which is a little, but it's a little bit oddball in that it's uh, probably it's just slightly lighter than what you know most people use, and and the other Diderio sets. Uh, but where I was going with Diderio is that years later, um, um, I got some strings from Gibson, and they were in fact different and and strange and uh called up asked what's going on they said well we don't you know gibson always made their own strings at a factory in elgin illinois and they said well we don't make our own strings anymore diderio's making our strings now and i said well i don't like these and they go well let's work together and make them make them better and so after working uh you know discussions and this and that back and forth with diderio um I, they came up with a Mona Steel string that I found myself liking even better than the old Gibsons, and and they last longer. They last longer even even for me. <laughs> and uh, but so the gauge on that on that set is eleven from first to fourth, eleven, fourteen, twenty five, forty one. Oh, a 14. And the forty one is actually a heavier gauge than what they put in in their other set. I think they're the other ones that they make is. Yeah, I think the the normal Diderio sets at eleven, fifteen, twenty six, forty. So yeah, I don't know, but I sure like that slightly bigger fourth. 
Yeah. Well, man, no, nobody's going to argue with your your sound. <laughs> you could you could say you wrap it with a piano wire, and people people be out buying piano wire as soon as this as as this interview well, is that, over. Trying. It, it's yeah, it's not a signature model with uh, Diderio, but but that said, it is available that I use for purchase for purchase. That's right. And you use also your picks. Um, I caught one at your last show that you played at the in Charleston. The, uh, <laughs> the uh, some bish. Strings or <laughs> and um, Steve McCrary came up with with that title on uh, those picks. Did he really? Uh, from yeah, from Colleen's guitar. Yeah, and I said, well, how come you put some? Because we all. I, by the way, I've never really had my name on a pick. Uh, I just always wanted to look like it was misspelled or <laughs> what have you. It, it all started when Courtney Johnson and banjo player Newgrass Revival used to call me Stan Brush, and so. <laughs> Those were what my the first time I ever you know had, had a name printed on them, Stan Brush, and then uh, through the Great Divide Music Store in Aspen, Sandy Monroe would order picks for me, and uh, Pastor Mustard would always uh, come up with what name was going to be on my new batch. So there were many names, that, and so years later, uh, uh, Sandy didn't have the store anymore. And I found that uh, the type of pick I liked was, uh, in fact, what Colling's guitars had. And uh, so Steve McCrary helped me get some of those. And, and the first batch that came, I just said, well, just make, just, you, you you choose, Steve, what should go on there. And uh, he wrote uh, Some Bish. And I go, <laughs> well, okay, how come Some Bish? And he, say, he says, well, that way when you get through, they can say, you know what, that old Some Bish ain't so bad. <laughs> 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 so, oh man they cracked me up <laughs> yeah, yeah they cracked me up too when i looked at it and i was like well, what <laughs> so cool uh, yeah you know yeah but they yeah what they're they're 0.96 which is what i grew up playing uh which was what uh your standard when i was a kid the standard fender heavy uh pick was so a 0.96 plastic pick yeah fortunately i never got a good tone with tortoise shell so i'm not endangering any species and uh and i i must my, my i don't know it was just like tooth I, I didn't it was more thin for me to use a tortoise shell and i know for some people can get a, a meteor sound out of them so there you go and it just depends on the the uh, the, the, the strike of the hit by the player i guess do you use the shoulder of the pick, the the wider end, or do you use the tip? Right, right. I, I use the two rounded sides. Yeah. I don't. I don't use the point for mandolin. I and when I was playing guitar, when I would play a lead, I used to kind of switch in my hand and go to the point for a lead on guitar. Back when I played more lead guitar in the early Newgrass revival, but I, I, I haven't really done that for a long time. So yeah, I just use the two rounded sides. And that way you have two sides to wear out. And I and I and with the plastic pick, I do I do wear grooves in them pretty quickly. Oh man, I bet. Um, well, and you got a and you got that um, right hand technique too, buddy. Where it is just like it is powerful looking. And and I have on here. Now you broke your arm before a new grass revival tour. Well, <laughs> no, well, there's different. Th no, I never actually broke a whole arm. But uh, <laughs> um, before, uh, when we'll see he, again, we we don't we never used to call it touring. We just went on the road right. and uh, <laughs> right. we lived on the road. And we were on the new when we actually be 
started going under the name Newgrass Revival, so it's now, oh gosh, the fall of 71, or, you know, or, or Thanksgiving weekend, I guess, almost. So it's, and uh, we, we uh, one of the first shows where we called ourselves Newgrass Revival, uh, we played in Elizabethan, Tennessee, and it, and it snowed, and we, we went up and stayed with a friend in North Carolina around Sugar Mountain, and, uh, and it snowed while we were, you know, spending the night there. So the next day we're driving, and our bass player, Ebo, is driving the car. We had a two, He had a two-door Buick, uh, about a 62 Buick, and I was asleep in the back seat, and, he, uh, you know, there were no windshield squirters back then, and so I... So snow and uh, uh, salt are all over his windshield, so he stops to clean it off with some snow. Well, he left the door open, and I guess in my slumber, I rolled around in my hand. Uh, I don't know. I was, it must have been shielding my face from the light or something, and my hand was in the path of the car door shutting when he shut it. And uh, I was in the back seat behind him. At any rate, bam. Um, and I got to tell you, uh, getting your getting your hand slammed in a door will sure wake you up faster than a cup of coffee. Uh, and uh, it's it, um, so it so it uh, it mashed my my right thumb, the, the forefinger, the worst, and the middle finger not as bad, but it mashed those three, and but especially the first finger. And so something probably got a little chipped in there, and. Uh, and so we went on to the festival in Lakeland, Florida. I remember we stopped in Spartanburg, South Carolina, to go in the emergency room, get a hole drilled in the nail to relieve the pressure. That's oh, all you man. can do. Of course, nowadays I'd you know go to a hand surgeon and try to see what happened, and <laughs> right. you know, you know, when you don't have any insurance and you're 19 years old, you just go on. And um, so we went on down to Lakeland, Florida, where we played a bluegrass festival on Thanksgiving weekend. And, uh, you know, had a great time. I mean, the Osborne brothers were there, Del McCurry and the Dixie Pals, the Lewis family, the New Deal string band, Newgrass Revival, and uh, second generation, Eddie Adcock's band. And um, anyhow, I ended up going back to that emergency room for the same kind of hole drilling. And that was pretty painful. But at any rate, I couldn't, I couldn't hold a flat pick for a while, like a couple of months. Uh, or at least a good six weeks, and uh, I couldn't hold a fiddle bow either. And thumb was so I, all I could do was put a thumb pick on and and uh, and uh, put it all the way at the base of where the thumb joins the hand and hold it on with my third finger. Oh my gosh! Wow! I've seen a picture of it, and uh, and and guess who was in the audience for that show? <laughs> a very young Mike Marshall who had come to hear. He'd heard about me and wanted to see me play <laughs> and said to himself, that's how he does that? Boy, that don't sound, that don't sound so good. And, and it didn't. Uh, so, yeah, that happened. And then, you know, I've had little breaks and what have you. I remember in 1994, I was leaving uh, Jerry and Jill Douglas's house. Uh, we had gone to uh, wish Olivia, uh, their oldest daughter, who had her third birthday, and I was leaving, and Lynn and I were leaving, and I was literally just reaching for the car door, and there was black ice on the street, and I I, I just went down, bam, and uh, it dislocated my right elbow, so I, that put me out of action for a while. Oh man! Uh, and uh, so you know, I've had little things that happen, or you know, broke the knuckle on my right hand. So I mean, there's not that damn, but another time, and um, so it all, all that stuff will all. 
I mean, it all alters your stroke, uh, especially the one in, in 1971 with the fingers, because before that, I played, uh, I always held the pick like Bill Monroe with a closed hand mm-hmm. and played my leads with a closed hand. I didn't brace my hand anywhere. And after that, the only way I could get where it was comfortable to play was to, I had to reposition my hand and uh, really kind of start bracing my fur, my little finger on the top, kind of like Doc Watson. So uh, that one was the most stroke-altering one. Uh, and so, and I, I guess, and to this day, I think I, I, I still play rhythm with a closed hand, but, you know, tend to brace um, on the top uh but but even at that, you know, as as I age, I I, I have to re, I have to keep refining the stroke. And uh, for the last couple of years, I've been working on freeing up my hand a little more and not bracing so tightly on the bridge. Keep try to keep my thumb part of the hand off the bridge a little more. I think because you know you can develop bad habits over the years. But uh, so so I'm trying. I'm trying to just free up that hand a little bit. How does a guy like Sam Bush, who's, I mean, you've got just this legendary sound. How do, how do you approach changing things up like that? You know, I mean, it's tough enough for somebody sitting at home going, you know, I think I have some bad habits, you know, but for somebody who's, you know, so well known and been doing it for so long, what's your approach? Oh, uh, ask, ask people who, uh, whose uh, opinion I value, uh, <laughs> Like I can remember one time somewhere in the 70s, latter 70s or, you know, 77, I don't know, somewhere uh, we were playing with Jethro somewhere. And I asked, I told Jethro, I said, man, I'm, I'm feeling stuck lately. Do you see me developing any bad habits? And without hesitation, he just went, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. And now I, I, it, there's a visual that would accompany this story, but he goes, the strings are only this wide. How come your hand travels this far? <laughs> <laughs> and I had no good answer for that. And so, uh, you know, that took that to heart. But the most recent one was a couple of years ago, or almost not quite two years ago. I, in 2019, I had a, a health scare, and uh, I ended up in the hospital for a couple of surgeries in St. Louis. And so I was out of... I was out of the ball game for for a couple for you know a couple of months almost and uh, or maybe not quite that long but at any rate a number of a time you know six weeks and um, so at that point uh, Stephen Mojan would come over and work me out and help me I mean I literally had to work on my breathing again oh my gosh uh, and and uh, but I hadn't picked any you know and so Stephen helped me pick and and one day Brian Sutton came over to help work me out. And uh, so Brian comes over, and the same thing. I said, Brian, my hand, I seem like I'm getting stuck, you know, down on my right hand somewhere. And uh, he, I just noticed, you know, Brian has the most effortless cross-picking style of thing, if, when he wants to on the guitar. And it's just so effortless and beautiful and fluid. And uh, so I, Brian gave me some advice that day. So, you know, there's always something, there's something to learn, and um you know, I can watch the hands of Chris Dealey or Sierra now and kind of go, huh, 
You know, why why can't I be that fluid? Okay, because I'm because I'll be 69 years old next month. <laughs> That's part of it. That's a little bit of it. <laughs> they don't have any arthritis in their thumbs yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, watching the revival documentary, and I would wholeheartedly agree with this. There's no chop like Sam Bush's chop. Nobody sounds like you. However, if you were to talk to somebody about how you approach the chop to get to have them maybe they're going to get your sound, but how you approach it, how would you tell somebody to work on the chop? Uh, no, it's kind of, uh, I think it's kind of uh, subjective because I think People are just going to do it differently. Mm-hmm. You know, John Duffy had, I think, the, probably the the person I was emulating the most when I was really thinking about making a better chop. I mean, uh, early in, in, way back in the Bluegrass Alliance, we played somewhere one night, and one of the guys uh, said, it sounds like you're speeding up your rhythm. I said, you know, I'd go, no, I'm not. And, <laughs> and I think Courtney said, well... You might not be, but it sounds like you are. And uh, and uh, and we got to breaking it down and got to going, Courtney and some. But yeah, it was it kind of came obvious that okay, I was holding the chord down longer, like than John Duffy did. And I tell you, who had a great rhythm chop that didn't play a lot of leads on the mandolin that was um, the guys, well, the guy who played mandolin in Bluegrass Alliance before me named Danny Jones. And Danny, too, loved John Duffy's rhythm chop, and Danny had a very good rhythm chop. And um, so I tried to really play like Dan Jones and, and, uh, and John Duffy uh, to kind of get that shorter chop going that John, that John had a shorter one than Bill Monroe even. And, uh, so, but I mean, you know, I mean, there's different one. I mean, so many great ones, you know, Jimmy Goodrow had a great one. Larry Rice had a really cool chop. Uh, Doyle Lawson, of course, had a great one. And, um, and so, but maybe one of the things that also changed mine a little bit was in fact, listening to the rhythm guitar of Bob Marley. Uh, and there's, plus there, uh, I also always tried to, I mean, in, in, uh, playing drums in the high school marching band, I could never play a, a trap kit. That was beyond me, beyond, you know, physical <laughs> coordination. But, um, but, you know, thinking about drum rudiments and what have you. And then, then when I, you know, re- the reggae, again, rhythm guitar of Bob Marley, but also the way the drums were in the Whalers, and then later when Stuart Copeland played drums in the police, those kind of thoughts yeah. where I would try to make a little pattern where certain upstrokes might be what a hi-hat did and the downstroke would be what the snare drum did. But still, that doesn't, you know, explain how you make the chop. I mean, when I'm in, you know, when in a workshop and ask about the chops, what I demonstrate is, you know, listen to the difference between holding this chord down or if or if you it's almost as if you are releasing the chord as you strike it with the pick but you have to you know it has to you have to make enough of the chord where people can identify the chord in that chop it's not just a sound with your right hand that you get so the chord must be identified and um so that's real uh, that's a, a kind of a simplic simplistic way to think of it just that you re, you sort of release 
the chord as you strum it. That's perfect. It's... I've often wondered if Bill Monroe didn't develop the rhythm chop because his accent just got so damn high, couldn't hold it down. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't think that's really the case. But that's a, that's a great that's theory, the way, though. That's <laughs> the way my stupid brain works. Yeah, it's I'm, it's cool you said Stuart Copeland because I always thought. Um, some of the cool right-handed accent stuff you do reminds me of like the song Walking on the Moon where he's doing the cool like between like the hi-hat yeah, and, the, and the rim. It, well, it is influenced by stuff like that, yeah. yes. Cool. Uh, Stuart, yeah. When when Stuart was playing in the band Animal Logic, uh, a friend of mine, Maple Burns, excuse me, Maple Byrne, um, his long, long time uh, road manager, guitar tech for Emmy Lou Harris. We, we were good pal, pals. He was working with a band called Kennedy Rose, who was opening for Animal Logic. And so at that time, Strength in Numbers had just come out, and I, I gave a copy to Maple. I said, "Would you, would you give this to Stuart Copeland? Tell him this is from the Malin player. That's his biggest fan of any Malin player." <laughs> and, uh, and he said, about three, three days later, Stuart whacked poetically about the strength and numbers record oh, but we've never met or anything oh no so kidding I, you know, no but i i'd I love I, I would really love to play with him but i love i love drummers and so um you know i like when in in my own band uh playing with chris brown is is a really joyful thing we have this communication with timing that really works and uh as because chris is such a hip guy of uh, understanding different timings, you know. I mean, there there could be, without you know going too far into it, you know, you can have a slow side of the beat, you can have a right in the middle. So I, th- I think of like Little Feet in New Orleans style music as slow side of the beat, or certain rock and roll is. And then, but I think of you know country music kind of right in the middle, and I think of bluegrass style music on the fast side of the beat, and all of them are in time. Right. You're not slowing down with the New Orleans, and you're not speeding up with bluegrass when it's clipping along. It's you know, it's kind that, of where the accent mistake. falls. Yeah, absolutely, and that's just a feel thing. And it's just it's nothing you can. I mean, it's things you can learn, but you but it's, you really got to feel it. Well, you got such tremendous feel. Did you always know that you wanted to play with a drummer? Because again, you know, coming from the bluegrass world. And you being one of the best rhythmic players, you know, it's uh, it... not not. Yeah, well, sort of not necessarily. I mean, but yes. Uh, well, I mean, I, you know, I also grew up playing in rock bands, uh, playing guitar in rock bands. And and um, um, it uh, when when Newgrass Revival first had Kenny Malone play on some of our records, we knew that we loved the way Kenny played with us in the studio, but we never really felt like we needed it. We didn't, you know, didn't really want it on the on the road. We didn't want a full time drummer, but yet, well, we found a person as sensitive to our timing as as Kenny was. And uh, and then later, when when we uh, when we got our first Capitol deal, Capitol Records, um, we we had a couple of songs. Well, one one was Peter Rowan's Revival. I'm tired of hearing about how my life 
Um, I, John and I specifically wanted Jamie Oldacre, who played drunk. We knew him from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the, the association of Leon Russell. It, uh, we first saw Jamie play with Leon before he ever played with Eric Clapton on all those great records he made with Clapton. And uh, so Jamie, um, we, asked, we, we had the budget to bring Jamie in and play Revival with us. He played a couple of tunes with us. and um, But we specifically wanted, because the way he played a kind of a what I call reggae rock drums and we wanted that specifically on revival and so that was interesting because Jamie definitely plays on the slower side of the beat than a bluegrass player does but we but we matched up it just took a little time for us to settle down and match up but we wanted him for that reason and uh but years and then years later when I, when I ended up in Amy Lou Harris's band for five years uh my good old buddy Larry Atamanyuk ended up on drums and Larry, is, again, uh, is sensitive to all sides of the beat. And uh, really the way Larry played in my band before Chris Brown got there kind of made the template of how the drums work, you know, with the way I play rhythm too. But I know that Chris and I, when uh, when we play together on stage, I'm I'm in his monitor and he's sure in mine. Now, let's talk a little bit about gear. We were talking um, last last week when we first talked, we were talking about Haas and his fifth, his fifth fingerboard. Yeah. <laughs> and you said there's, you know, first off, there's the legendary story of the removal of the finish. <laughs> yeah, well, I wasn't there for that. Right, but right. That was done by uh, Norman Blake, who owned it, uh, and John Hartford. And uh <laughs> They hated the finish on that mail one. It was it was it was the original 1937, uh, really thick lacquer, and it was kind of one of those sunburst finishes that was kind of went from yellow to black. So it wasn't really, again, you know. And uh, Tony Williamson told me that there were five F5s made in 1937, and this was the last one to leave the factory. And uh, I did apparently it didn't ship till 1938. And I uh, shipped to a man named Alfonso Workman in Pittsburgh. <laughs> and uh, uh, I swear this was a factory second. It has the sloppiest binding that I've ever seen on any <laughs> F5 made. Just it doesn't. The little the little lines don't match. <laughs> it's just all weird. It must have been a factory second or something. I don't know. But um, any rate, uh, and um, but uh, Norman had the mandolin, and um, I think. Yeah, he had already he had the back taken off and the voice and the the braces shaved by Randy Wood, and that's what made it a great sounding mandolin because I knew the instrument before Norman had it, and mm-hmm. I didn't want it. And um, so uh, he and he and John took the finish off one night, and apparently there and I, there is there was a tape of them doing it, uh, just. Uh, the audio tape only of him doing it with John as the sportscaster with his radio John voice. And, uh, you know, now we're going down for a close up around the base F hole here. And, uh, you know, and so uh, they did that. And then before I got it, I didn't know that Randy Wood had uh, put a varnish finish on it. So when I first, when I first saw, uh, any rate, Norman traded the mandolin to Tut Taylor told Tut I was dying to get it. So Tut called me and within a week I had it. Wow. And when I came down to get it, um, 
Um, I, to my surprise, it had a new varnish finish that was just beautiful, copied after one of Tuss Lloyd Lores, and um, and Randy Wood had engraved the blocks. So Norman had Randy engrave the blocks. They were beautiful. So this this beautiful instrument, and 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 Randy distressed it just a little bit at that time, even. So that's one of the first distressed things I had ever heard about. Uh, you know, made made of some things look worn, like a strap had worn down. Where you know, just a few things. But other than that, it has beautiful finish. So pretty much ever marked has ever been put on that man when I did. Wow. And. Um, and and uh i'm not really i'm not really as hard on instruments as that one might seem but uh <laughs> but the varnish you know wore off and a lot of that on the top was done by hitting it on the microphone before we ever plugged in just an attempt to be heard uh, a lot of it has just where my fingers where i brace have rubbed it so uh just rubbed that varnish finish off and of course the pick strokes on the upper on the curl and everything that's me and um but uh, fingerboard-wise, um, looking back, I, I think I may have been the first person that – well, I, I never saw anybody else do it before I did. I always made the bad pick click on that on the fingerboard extension, and it bugged me on records. I would hear that pick click and clicking and, um, from where my hand rested and felt natural to play. It was over – the pick was over the fingerboard extension on the F5 board. And so, uh, but I didn't, so first thing I did was in somewhere around 74, somewhere in there, Bob Givens, the great mandolin builder, I asked Bob to, to remove the frets and just fill it in with wood filler. So Bob removed the frets, and that helped to not have the metal frets, but I still made the click. And um, But I didn't think I should cut the board off because I always assumed everything had something to do with the sound on the instrument. And... Um, and then one day I ran into Roland White, who had sawed the ball, had had the board fingerboard just sawed <laughs> off on his. And I said, "Well, have you noticed any difference in the sound?" He goes, "Yeah, that that click's gone." <laughs> and um, so then it wasn't long until uh, we uh, Bela had now joined the New Grass Revival, and and he was friends with John Monleon, and we went to John Monleon's, and I asked John to to uh, take. Saw saw mine off, but John did it, made it look good with you know uh, uh, matching up binding to go around it, and uh, so that was cool. And then now it got to be so then, but you know as wear and tear goes on, and I note pretty hard, I guess. Um, so Monteleone replaced was the first fingerboard replacement John Monteleone did. Uh, the second replacement, third board, was uh, Harry Sparks installed a Stephen Anderson fingerboard that had, you know, just in the blank. So that was a Steve Anderson board installed by Harry Sparks. The fourth one was installed by Dave Harvey at Gibson. Now I was, you know, having the association with Gibson with the Sam Bush models. And then, so that was a Sam Bush model fingerboard put on the, the fourth board. Then the fifth board came just during uh, the 2020 pandemic, and you know it's kind of like you know this thing's now it's all pitted out again, and uh, so uh, uh, Lynn Dudenbostel is now in, installed the uh, 
what will surely be the last fingerboard I put on this thing. Never know, though. Catch me in 10 years. Right, uh, but, right. <laughs> uh, but Dudenbostel is just a masterful, masterful uh, builder, and so he, he just did a beautiful job on this one. Yeah, wow. Such a nice guy, too. Wonderful. And you also own Jethro Burns's mandolin. I do. Yeah. Um, Any stories behind that? That's a that's a pretty legendary piece right there too. I'm I'm not worthy. I, I'm not worthy to own this. This is you know, if 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 there, if there were fairness, Don Steerenberg would be would have it because he <laughs> he can play more. He can he can play what totally the mandolin deserves. But um, no, I came through uh, John Burns, Jethro's son, just a couple years older than me. Uh, John and our pals and. He had it, and um, it, um, you know, he came time for John to sell it and called me up and said, get your money together. I'm selling Big Red. And uh, I said, oh, man, we just put a new kitchen in our house. <laughs> 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 well, then he put the hard sell on me, sent it to me. And I go, oh, God, I got to get this. And, um, but it is so unique. As, uh, well, I, I sold I sold I sold a fit my fifty four Telecaster to oh, wow. uh, help finance that man. Oh, I did the right thing, and because um, I have another Telecaster now, and it's fine for me. And and uh, but though um, no, that that mandolin is one of the reasons that I grew up loving the look of block inlay on a mandolin. Mm-hmm. Um, and even Jeff and the F fives Jethro would play in the sixties. Of course, we're block the great the block inlay but that's the one i now know that he recorded um um you know he recorded with that one and would play it on tv but he didn't really take it on the road so much because he and homer played electric and uh as a matter of fact he there there's another one uh with also with block inlay that was made with f holes that has a like a, a big gibson p90 guitar pickup in it so he and Homer uh, they had played their acoustic instruments of course on record and uh, uh, on TV and then they would plug they would both plug into one little amplifier and, pl- and sing over one mic for their shows they didn't <laughs> And uh, and so there, there there's another one that uh, and it's red also and I've got it too oh wow do you happen to remember like the first thing you played on it when you got it? Oh, I'm sure I tried. I'm, yeah, it was probably uh, uh, Broadway cool. uh, that that I learned from Homer Jethro Records. But uh, <laughs> yeah, that those those stay under lock and key. Yeah, man, <laughs> I bet. If I'm not here, they're not here. So you know, it's uh, we they're pretty special to me. Um, but again, I mean. One time I, I recorded a song called The River's Gonna Run, and I wanted with duet with Amy Lutheris, and I, but it's a rock and roll song. and uh, But I wanted, so I wanted that round hole mandolin sound on that. John Burns. I said, your dad would roll over in his grave if he heard what I played on this mandolin today. <laughs> and John's, John, who's as funny as his dad, uh, says, uh, he goes, yeah, well, don't forget that dad recorded Kellogg's Cornflakes commercials on that thing. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> oh, wow, that's so cool, man. I had no but idea it, it's awesome. not. But that old mandolin is not. Uh, it's it's very unique. It doesn't sound like you know the old uh, F4s and F2s and and, and A A4 and A's. You know, sounded. It's a different sound. It's 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 it is a different sound. Uh, Lynn and I own a mandolin that. Lo and behold, is a 1917 A4 that belonged to her granddad, oh, no whose nickname way. was whose nickname was Bootsy, and that thing is in great condition and it sounds wonderful. But yes, so I have we have an A model, and that one definitely I consider both of ours because that's her granddad's. Yeah, so, sure. Well, Boots, Bootsy is a very unique man, <laughs> but it's very cool. And uh, so I have a great sounding old, you know. Mandolin, but the Jethro one sounds it's it's very unique. It is a jazz instrument, and I am not a jazz player. I just know some of Jethro's things to play on it. Wow, that's awesome, man. Well, we're just I got a couple more questions for you. I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I really appreciate you uh, doing this here. This has been just a uh, a huge a huge thing for me that I really appreciate. So. Can't tell you. <laughs> I love mandolins and I love mandolin players. Oh, same here, man. So um, the first one is if you could recommend one thing for someone to work on for 10 minutes a day, what would you recommend? Uh, well, if, if you're, you know, yeah, if you're playing 10 minutes, uh, try to remember to work on, on both hands, work on your back and forth playing. Uh, but... Um, Really, you know, play play something play something that you enjoy, and then play something that's not so easy that you're learning to do. But you gotta, you know, I mean, because because I like to tell people, you know, I mean, especially if you've already played guitar, you can pick up a mandolin, and within the first few days, you know, learn some chords and enjoy strumming. And uh, hey, Sir Paul McCartney, you know, got a mandolin and wrote a song. Right. So, <laughs> And, uh, and, and, and it's a good song. So, you know, it's, and it, I'll tell you what's interesting is around, for instance, you know, it's always a challenge as a session player, for instance, when you play in, especially in Nashville here, when you play on a country record, well, all the, all the ex, all the knowledge you have of fiddle tunes and bluegrass tunes and, you know, or maybe you've learned Jethro's jazz or dog music or what have you. Um, all of the, all of this knowledge means nothing sometimes when you're playing on a country song because you may find that a guitar player that doesn't play mandolin very much can pick up a mandolin and satisfy the producer faster than you can because you know all all our technique and things we've been working on our whole life to master <laughs> this instrument might not blend in as good as what, again, as what a, you know, somebody that, you know, a guitar player that just plays the mandolin might have a better idea what fits that song because they, their, their mind is not clouded by all this knowledge. <laughs> if, if that sound, if that makes any totally sense. Totally makes sense, and man. And so, um, and so in that way, you know, I've learned to, to really, you know, try to wise up over the years and, and, and again, play for the song. Um, and, and some of that, a, a couple examples I can think of are recording with, uh, 
Don Williams and 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 Lyle Lovett, that both those guys, their records are just so to the point, and the vocals are so. Again, what might seem like a simple vocal by Don Williams, yeah, well, you tried doing it, and uh, <laughs> see how you sound. And uh, so when and when those records are so, I don't know, it, it's like the simplicity is so great that you and all your fancy licks can totally ruin them if you're not careful. That and so and with Lyle the same way, you know he. He can really just—I mean—a great Lyle Lovett song really just needs him and his guitar, and um, so the idea is that well, it sound sounded good before I played on it. How's it sound now? And uh, so it um, to 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 fit in—that's a challenge, and uh, I always enjoy that challenge of trying to fit in on other people's songs because I can play however I want when I'm doing mine, <laughs> but. Even with that, you know, am I playing good on that song? Right. Does it does it need the hot lick, or does it just need something pretty? And um, so that's just something that you just have to uh, be aware of and play for the song. Yeah, that's good advice in all situations. <laughs> I tell you who's great. I tell you who's great at that on the man with Norman Blake. Oh man, for sure. The his mailing playing on aerial plane on a song called The First Girl I Loved is like one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. I was in love with you well before I knew it meant more than just wanting to be with you. We used to look for other girls that looked like you. But the laws of nature said forget a son, Lisa, that's what somebody told me. I worried about it a little bit, but that's all. You know, so don't forget about Norman Blake and Tim O'Brien out there, kids. That's right. And then the uh, the last question, although maybe not as pertinent as it is today as it was maybe years ago, but do you have a favorite beer? <laughs> Favorite beer. Um, <laughs> I used to have a lot of favorite beers. <laughs> uh, 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 yeah, uh, Stella. Oh yeah, man. Stella on tap's great. Uh, when the, when the Nash Ramblers, uh, when we we were the we were the only uh, we 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 visited the. Um, in, in Dublin, Ireland, we visited the Guinness uh, factory, and they gave factory tours, and you got a pint at the end, and that was a pretty amazing thing to get a pint of Guinness at the end. At the, and and we, were, we, we were told we were one of the few uh, people that ever was asked to leave because we all, after, after we begged another one out of us, and we all had two pints, then we wanted more, and then they said, get out of here. <laughs> so we, we actually got kicked out of the Guinness uh, factory showroom. And uh, But one of the greatest ever was just to, uh, yeah, like in the hotel in Pilsen in Czechoslovakia, just uh, just getting that great Pilsen right out of a uh, you know in the town where Pilsen is made. That was that. So you know, uh, we we used to love to uh, you know have beers from around the world or getting getting a uh, you know a, a, a Sapporo or a Kirin right out of the tap in Japan was always a treat too. So. Um, I haven't actually drunk beer for a number of years, but uh, but but it still tastes good. <laughs> <laughs>
Heineken was always your good fifty-eight four to beers. It was it was it would always run and was dependable. Yeah, so, uh, <laughs> you, you know. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I could always get it, man. That's right. Well, this has been this is a it's been a milestone for me to to have these conversations with you. And uh, again, when I started this podcast, your name was at the top of the list of like. Uh, when I, if, if this is successful, I will feel like it's been successful when I can, uh, when I can talk to my hero and that is you. And so this means a lot to, to get this one under the belt. My pleasure. My pleasure. And, uh, I appreciate being part of it. And, um, there's a lot of good pickers out there, so I'm just glad to be in there somewhere. All right, there you go. Part two. Thank you so much to Sam. He's the best. Uh, and thank you to Adrian Gross here. Let's listen to Evening Prayer Blues from the Adeline Project. Cheers, everybody. Thanks for listening.
Super Deluxe.